first scripture reading is Psalm 34, picking up at verse 8. We heard our call to worship from the first seven verses this morning, and now we're going to read starting at verse 8. This section actually gets quoted, parts of it get quoted in two different places, at least in Peter. You will see, starting at verse 12 and following, how that gets picked up in Peter in a minute. Psalm 34, it's on page uh, 464 in your blue Bibles. O taste and see that the Lord is good, that Yahweh is good. That's in 1 Peter 2, verse 3. O taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is a man who takes refuge in Him. O fear Yahweh, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer hunger, uh, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And now we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, picking up where we left off at verse 8. So we continue just marching our way through 1 Peter. We dealt with the first seven verses last week. So now comes verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For who, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking with deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, turn us toward you that we may hear and change for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there with lots of space, points. You know, it's a, it's a very human, it's very human and it happens more often than we think or want to think that it happens. A guy gets pressure at work. He gets his manhood insulted. He gets threatened with being fired by a supervisor and a supervisor's supervisor if he just doesn't produce more and more. Oh, that's what you did for me last week, but what have you done for me today? And so after a while, it builds up, and he, and he drives home fuming and fearful and still seething. When he gets out of the car, he slams the vehicle door and he salts up to the house. And as soon as he enters the house... The family feels the black clouds of doom from Mordor blanketing all of life. And before you know it, he's shouting at his kids. He's hollering at his wife about the messy house or the burnt supper or suddenly he's accusing his wife about overspending and then fighting with her about money. Now, those may be real problems. It may be a messy house. 
There may be some lack of financial control, all those possibilities, but the issue is none of those things. The issue is because he can't fix the out there trouble. He can't address the people who are actually scaring him and threatening him, his boss and his boss's boss. He can't deal with that out there. And so he comes here and he takes it out in here in his family. And it's not just guys that do it. I have seen women do the very same thing, threatened by the the, the, the unconquerable situation they are in and frightened to the gills and yet they can't do anything about it, so they come home and they explode on those whom they love and who are closest to them. It's a very human situation. Peter's mandates here in verses 8 and 12 are addressing this issue on a different front. But first, we need to see how 1 Peter builds momentum. Builds momentum. To get where we need to go, we need to get to chapter 3, 8 through 12, We need first to employ our memory and see how Peter is building momentum. So we're going to start back in chapter 1. We're just going to be a little surveyed as we run through. Chapter 1, starting at verse 3, according to God's abundant mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. God has by grace alone brought us into a living hope and a lively inheritance. And so this living hope and lively inheritance is not something new, novel, and newfangled. It didn't just pop up in the first century, but chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it runs deep into God's dealings covered all the way in the Hebrew Scriptures. That the Hebrew Scriptures were talking about our moment. We're talking about Christ and the sufferings and the subsequent glories. They realized they were ministering not just to themselves, but to us to whom this gospel is proclaimed. Oh, this is an ancient faith that runs deep. And it was all part of God's foreknowledge, foreknowing us. So this living hope and lively inheritance is grounded in the fact that God and His Son Jesus really does set us free from our old ways of being, our old ways of perceiving, our old ways of seeing. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways. You were ransomed from your enslavement, your hostage situation, from the futile ways that inherited from your forefathers, ransomed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so what the Father has done and what the Father is doing in His Son, Jesus has now done something new to us. It has brought us into a new family with a new family likeness, a new family likeness. And so we are to recall who we are, whose we are, and why we are. So think of chapter 2, verses 4, 5, all the way to verse 10, right? You're a rock that doesn't roll, a priest that's pleasing, a sacrifice that is savory. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to him, to, to, to God through Jesus Christ. You now are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of your darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now he has made you his people. Once you did not know mercy, now he has made you to know mercy. Therefore, the work of Christ has brought and is bringing about in us changes. Because of all that God has done for us, it actually impacts us. And so in Christ and by Christ and for Christ, we are being fashioned into God's minority people who have better manners. <laughs> well, tell my mom, okay? She thinks I had horrible manners growing up. But he's transforming us into a minority people who have better manners. So picking up more there in chapter 2, starting around verse 11 and following. To begin, united to Christ, we are, are now nomads. We are now expats. We are now immigrants, sojourners, strangers in a strange land. Minority people. That's what he says right there in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, etc. But we are those things who are honorable. So that even when we are accused as evildoers, our actions are good deeds that give no substance to the accusations. That's chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Further, starting there in verses 13 and following, united to Christ, we can be, be good citizens. Christ impacts our social and civil engagements and involvements. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Remember, that's the big mouth of the funnel, right? Our civil and social engagements. It's impacted those. But then moving deeper, moving down, chapter 2, 15 through 25, or 18 through 25, moving deeper into the funnel, then united to Christ, Christian slaves can serve honorably. And we showed how that was actually some universal aspects of what he says to Christian slaves. But Christian slaves can serve honorably. That's how he begins. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all due respect. And then we come to chapter 3, last week's sermon, United to Christ, wives. Now we're further down in the funnel. We're right here at the neck of the funnel. Further down in the funnel, he says, wives can wive well as daughters of Sarah. Likewise, wives be subject, etc. And verse 7, husbands can husband lovingly because of all that Christ has done in us. Likewise, husbands. And then he's getting down to the end of the funnel. And so these better manners are crowned with blessed measures. Blessed measures. That's verses 8 and 12. Remember, my friends, I'm trying to emphasize this with this rehearsal. That Peter's driving locomotion here is our being united to the redeeming, liberated, and liberating Christ. And so now we're at the very narrow, focused spout of the funnel out of which comes everything, the rest of this letter. And here we see that primarily Peter, in chapter 3, 8 through 12, Peter is talking primarily about the stuff inside the household. He's talking about specifically inside the household of Christ, inside the church as we are bound together. 
And so he, he ends this long be subject to uh, dialogue or monologue with finally all of you. So now he's gotten us inside of God's house. Finally, all of you. And notice the five traits that he brings out. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. There's the first one. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Being like-minded doesn't mean we all think the exact same thoughts and we're all you know, programmed to do those things. But it's the idea that with all of our odd thinking or diverse thinking, however you want to call it, we're on the same team. And we function as on the same team. I don't know if you ever played football, but I know what happens being a lineman when we linemen revolted against the quarterback and we're not on the same team all of a sudden. Poor quarterback got sacked. We're all on the same team. Paul has lots of things to say about it, but you can hear it, for example, towards the end of 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm. In the, this is in plural in the Greek. Y'all stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. But then he goes on. All of you, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy. I just break the word sympathy down. It means pathos together. Pathos with. Being able to fathom or trying to fathom the hurt, the pain, the joy, the pleasure of someone else. Sympathy. Right? Walking a mile in the other's shoes. For men, for example, it might actually pay off and be worth something for you to sympathize with a woman who has had a miscarriage. You'll never know what it's like. But instead of doing man things that we can sometimes do, we sit back and go, I don't know what our problem is. We actually can saddle up and say, you know, I don't know what you feel like. But I'm going to sit right here and weep with you. Sympathy. Sympathy. Walking a mile in the other shoes. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 12, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. Thirdly, brotherly love. My friends, that is actually probably the centerpiece of all the New Testament, that little phrase. Brotherly love. You heard it as we were reading from John 13. There's Judas. Jesus has just washed Judas's feet. And he has washed the feet of the, 11, the other 11 who will also betray him. He's washed their feet for crying out loud. He has broken bread and handed it to them. Communion. And Judas, he knows what the other 11 are going to do. Judas steps up and leaves and goes out into the dark. And then what does Jesus have the audacity to say? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, do you love one another? By this, the whole world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's over, it flows into every New Testament letter. It is the centerpiece. You could almost say that all the rest of the New Testament is unpacking and exegeting Jesus' new commandment. And so what does Peter do here? He says, yeah, don't forget it. This is one of our major traits, brotherly love. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. 
I love the Greek word just because it sounds really cool, but for other reasons too. The Greek word is eusplachnoi. Eusplachnoi. Have eusplachnoi. That doesn't sound very appealing to us, but it really means tender gutted. Being someone with a chronic gut disease who has a tender, physical tender gut very often, that actually resonates with me. Being hypersensitive or a little bit more sensitive to what's going on, being tender hearted toward others. It's what our Lord is toward us. Think of the last verse we read in Psalm 38, 4, Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, tenderhearted. Finally, all of you have, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, Peter's actually been laying out for us, drawing a map for us of what that humble mind looks like. If you just go back into chapter 2 and how he can't stop talking about Jesus towards the end of chapter 2. But think about it more pronouncedly from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And coming in the likeness of men and being born, in the, in a, uh, born as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those in earth, those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. If you want to know more, go back and listen to the Christmas Eve sermon. I can't get away from it. It's huge. Christmas is all about it, but other parts of Jesus' life are huge, giant about that. The humility of God in the flesh. And so Peter is saying the same thing, a, humbled, a humble mind. So finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. There's the five traits. But then he moves into the next section. And notice what he goes on to say. Not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Not dishing out the slander that's thrown at you. Now, not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You know, with a little thought, you have to stop a moment. With a little thought, you realize that Peter is giving us a reality check here. Peter is giving us a reality check here. What do I mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Peter's talking not at this point about what happens to us out there. He's talking about what goes on sometimes in here. He's talking about actions that happen inside the household of Jesus. Sometimes there is evil that happens inside the house. Sometimes there's reviling and slander that are dished out inside the household. And so don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And here's why this is an important reality check. The fact that Peter says this, and he's not afraid to say it, reminds us and pulls us up short for us to expect, for anyone to expect a sinless, faultless, perfect church where no one ever does wrong, where no one ever voices their bigotries, where no one 
ever does you any injury is, well, it borders on total unreality. And it's unbiblical. And it's unreal. What you are demanding, if you expect it, is you are demanding that the session, the elders, the pastor, or your fellow Christians are able to reach up into heaven and grab heaven and bring it to earth now. That's a Marxist notion. All of us are Marxists at heart. You cannot. Brothers and sisters, sin happens. Shame on us when all, uh, shame on us one and all when we have shoveled out the hurts, when we have dished out the tongue lashings, when we have pushed out and vomited out the subtle, slighting, slithering slaps or whatever you want to put in there. Shame on us. We shouldn't be that way. But also, shame on us when we have worn our offendedness at the very tips of our sleeves so that they have to brush somebody and now we're quick to be offended and to demand our rights and to do, to accuse other brothers, other sisters, other believers of ill intent because they hurt us. Shame on us. That, my friends, is actually how the predominant social order functions. And though we live there, and though we shop there, and though we play on the playgrounds there and so forth, that's not us, Peter says. We don't respond or retaliate in the same way. Instead, notice what Peter says next. Instead, bless. On the contrary, bless. Now, if we were in Mississippi, that could mean about five different things, and some of those are not good, okay? The word does mean, at the least, no doubt, to seek each other's best interests. But Peter has something else going on here. He is going deep into God's world rescue operation. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It goes clear back to Genesis chapter 12, the promise that God made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, Abram, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he said it again in Genesis 22, verses 18 and 19. Abraham, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Paul, the apostle, picks that up in Galatians chapter 3, that in Christ, right, or by faith, excuse me, that uh, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What promise? That you will be part of the blessed who are the dispensers of God's blessing, who's all about Jesus. On the contrary, bless that you may obtain a blessing. Remember who you are, whose you are, why you are. And so Peter shows us that he has this deeper, richer, more God-given perspective in mind by what he does next. Notice what he does next. He goes straight back to the Hebrew Scriptures. He doesn't make any apologies because it's still God's word for God's people in every age. 
He goes back to Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. Whoever desires love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now you begin to realize as you work through that portion of the psalm as Peter is quoting it here, you begin to recognize that Peter actually has Jesus on the brain. Peter has Jesus on the brain. Listen to the language again. A tongue devoid of evil. Lips that do not speak deceit. Eschewing evil to do good. Seeking peace and chasing it down. Hmm. Heard some of that somewhere. Yes. When he was talking to abused and oppressed slaves back in chapter 2. And he came to the gospel, and what did he say about Jesus? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. And so... Peter has Jesus on the brain, but it applies to us. What does that mean? It means that united to this Jesus, these have now, by the grace of God alone, become our family traits in here, in the household. So go back in your minds to chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, Peter, how can I do that? He says, glad you asked. Let me tell you, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, you can be this way because I have made you this way. And then in chapter 2, so... Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that it may, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is who Jesus is. These are his traits. And by our being united to him, Peter says they now have become our manners. So where 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12 are in 1 Peter, both thematically, if you follow the themes, and I think, actually, literarily, if you follow, lay out all the words, it fits almost right smack in the center. Where 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 are in 1 Peter, and how so much has been building up toward these blessed measures, these verses are of manners and blessed measures are the center of the crosshairs of Peter's gun sight. This is where he was headed. And everything else he's going to say flows out of this. So let me wrap this up. My friends, I mean, I think most of it is self-explanatory and most of us feel miserable, but that's okay. We're in it together. 
Dear friends, use this passage. Let me just give you something to start with. Use this passage reflectively before God in prayer. I mentioned it in the, in the letter this week. I hope people are reading the letter. Yeah, I mentioned in the letter, use this passage as prayer this week. Start with yourself. Lord, where am I falling short? Don't ask him if you are, because you are, okay? Where am I falling short? Lord, how can I do these things better? And use this passage to pray for our congregation as a whole. Lord, help us to be these things together. But just as importantly, my friends, and this is the main reason the letter is here, and this passage is here. Remember that Peter is addressing people whom God has foreknown, chapter 1, verse 2, and thus has made into his elect exiles his minority people. What does that mean? That means that on occasion, you fellow Christian minorities will be targeted. You will, on occasion, be spoken of as evildoers. You will even suffer on occasion, which Peter, starting in chapter 3, 13 to the end of the letter, will hammer on over and over again. Well, how in the world can we weather these squalls and storms then when they blow up? I know, I'll go, I don't know, I'll go join a political action committee. I'll go watch X news agency and get all the insider scoop and then I'll be more panicky. Peter tells you what to do, together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind, together with one another. That's how we weather those occasional storms and squalls. We desperately need each other, arms linked, hearts entwined. It's together where sometimes evil might crop up, but we don't repay evil with evil. It's together where reviling, slander might just crop up, but we don't respond with reviling and slander. It's together being and sharing blessing, the blessing of God through the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. It's together sharing that blessing that we can remain standing. And that we're able to stay with each other as we learn to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, we stick together better than gorilla glue as we turn away from evil and do good, seek peace with each other and pursue it. Now normally what happens under duress and stress, just think back to how I began this sermon, you know it's true. Normally what happens under duress and stress is that families turn on one another. Families are quick then to find fault, fume, and eat their own young because of fear or anger. And last Sunday evening, as I was preaching on Nehemiah 3 and 4, I gave you a recent example in Canada how Reformed Christians sometimes eat our Reformed brothers in Canada who are towing the line and consume them. Sometimes when we're under duress and stress, families could turn in on one another and even eat their own. But what is Peter doing here? He is stressing 
that we are not to become unsettled and treat one another as enemies, but as sweet family in here, which will keep us standing as we face the storms from out there. That's what Peter is driving at. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, thank you that you have warned us that there will be times when we will be spoken of as evildoers, we will be slandered and mistreated, just like they treated your son. We pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have not had unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, or a humble mind. Forgive us for the times when we have vomited out evil on those who have treated us wrong, when we have regurgitated slander and reviling upon those who maybe have slandered and reviled us. Lord, help us that we would be the people of blessing because of the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. Help us to be so bound together, come whatever may, social tsunamis, political and behavioral hurricanes, come what may, we would, by the grace of God alone, stand together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.